Chapter 3 of The Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robin Classen. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter 3 When David Lee secured an appointment under the government, he believed himself very fortunate. It really seemed providential that the private secretary to the Secretary of State should resign just at the conclusion of the trip abroad, which had followed his graduation at Yale, and while he was still uncertain whether fate intended him to become a bright and shining light in the literary world, or remain an obscure reporter on a New York daily, secretly he inclined to the former belief. For twenty-five is a somewhat egotistical age, even with the best of us. Moreover, he was decidedly elated at securing his present position. It had all been so easy. "'I can get the billet for you if you want it,' his uncle had remarked. "'And I advise you to take it. Such places are good stepping-stones to better things. They don't go begging, so you had better grab while the bag is open.' And he had grabbed eagerly. The selection of a place to live had been rather difficult and it was a month after he had entered upon his duties in the department before he could summon courage to apply for admittance to the select and exclusive boarding-house to which he had been recommended. "'I am the widow of a southern gentleman, Mr. Lee, who lost his all in the Civil War,' said the imposing personage who presented herself, in response to his request for the lady of the house. "'And I do take a few paying guests. I always require to know something of their antecedents. However, but, of course, your connections with the State Department is sufficient credential. So I will make an exception in your favor, and waive further reference. David thought himself uncommonly lucky, and thanked her profusely as he clinched the bargain, quite unconscious that the lady herself was equally anxious to come to an agreement. "'I have let the North Room at last, Mary,' she remarked to her maid, "'and for my own price, too.' "'Well,' responded Mary, who appeared to be a depressing companion, I wish him joy of his bargain, ma'am. He'll freeze in winter and roast in summer, not to mention having to light the gas every morning when he dresses. He won't stay long, and I wouldn't either if I could get what was owing me so there, Mrs. Colson. It's very unkind in you to speak so, Mary, returned Mrs. Colson, immediately dissolved into tears. My father owned a hundred slaves, and I never even tied my own shoestring until I came to Washington. The necessity of tying her shoes herself always weighed very heavily upon Mrs. Colson when placed in an awkward position. Her house was large and conveniently situated and therefore generally well filled, with the usual preponderance of indigent widows and spinsters of uncertain age. David found himself the object of close scrutiny as he took his seat at the breakfast table, and felt rather embarrassed in consequence. He had not yet learned that the advent of a young man is an occasion of breathless interest in the average boarding-house. Mrs. Colson received him with a welcoming smile, and at once introduced everyone within earshot, adding items of interest concerning them in parentheses after each name. Miss Jackson, Mr. Lee, a cousin of Stonewall Jackson. Miss Madison, a connection of Dolly Madison and named for her. Mr. Rayburn, one of our first families and head of a division in the Agricultural Department. Mrs. Rowan, niece of James Monroe and born in the White House. Miss Gray, Mr. Lee, and Miss Christine Gray, our newest guests, except for yourself. Mr. Marks, our scientist connected with the Smithsonian. Mrs. Colson paused for breath and looked about the room. Mr. Lee himself, she remarked, launching her piece de resistance, is the private secretary of the Secretary of State. 
David made a series of bows as the names were mentioned, and finally subsided into his chair, feeling flushed and uncomfortable. "'Will you kindly pass the salt?' said the cousin of Stonewall Jackson, who sat at his right. "'I'll thank you for the pepper,' murmured the White House baby at his left. David salted and peppered the ladies and ventured to look about him. He found himself being calmly considered by two large brown eyes. The property of Miss Christine Gray, his via vie. He was relieved to find her young, and glad that she was pretty. She was very pretty indeed, was Miss Christine, with the charm of youth and the brilliant coloring which suggests fresh air and plenty of it. Mr. Mark sat beside her and struggled bravely to be entertaining, but small talk was not his strong point. Deep down within his scientific heart something had recently stirred which both annoyed and surprised him, but he responded to its dictates and endeavored to be chatty and agreeable. "'Have you ever happened to calculate the percentage of mosquitoes which have never tasted blood?' he inquired by way of setting the ball rolling as he slowly stirred his coffee. "'No,' returned Christine, her dimple suddenly in evidence. "'But I expect you could tell me the exact number.' Mr. Marks entirely forgot to reply as he pondered over her words. He was often dimly aware that her most innocent remarks admitted of two constructions, and that his fellow boarders frequently showed a disposition to become hilarious when he himself failed to detect the joke. Christine now applied herself to her breakfast, and relapsed into silence. Evidently, thought Mr. Marks, mosquitoes did not interest her. He would try again. "'Have you ever considered,' he remarked casually, "'how much better it would be if the human race existed upon one sort of food only?' This multiplicity of viands is bad for the stomach. Mr. Marks frequently referred to that portion of his anatomy, and always with great respect. I don't think I would like it at all, replied Christine promptly. One kind of food served constantly would become absolutely hateful. Mr. Marks again cogitated for some minutes. He wished to prove his quickness at repartee, and took advantage of a general lull in the conversation to do so. Does butter, he demanded, in sepulchral tones, and Christine, meeting an irrepressible twinkle in David's eye, laughed outright and precipitately left the table. A few minutes later David encountered her in the hall, her hands full of letters and papers, which she scanned anxiously and impatiently flung upon the table. "'It has not come, Molly,' she said to her sister. "'There is something for everyone in the house except ourselves. And yet he promised you, didn't he?' "'Never mind, Christine,' said Miss Gray gently. "'He may have forgotten.' Congressmen are so busy, you know. The two girls went on upstairs, and David emerged from the house simultaneously with the connection of Stonewall Jackson and the White House baby. Both ladies carried brown paper packages, three by four inches in size, each containing two sandwiches and a slice of cake. Force of circumstances obliged them to spend their days within the restricting walls of the Treasury Department, and naturally robust appetites clamored for satisfaction as the noon hour approached but their aristocratic lineage demanded that such bodily nourishment be genteelly compressed into the smallest space possible. Miss Jackson drew the ends of her thick veil together and sighed depressingly. "'It's a lovely morning, isn't it?' ventured David, as the trio walked briskly down the street. "'Is it?' she responded from the depths of the veil. "'I'm sure I had not noticed. When one spends one's days bending over a desk, one does not care whether the sun shines or not.' David had a guilty feeling— that he should not have introduced the subject of the weather, and digressed to a safer topic. "'What a beautiful city Washington is,' he remarked impersonally as they crossed Lafayette Park. "'I see nothing beautiful in it,' responded the White House baby, looking with contemptuous eyes at the place of her birth. 
I count money all day long in the basement of the treasury, and dream again of counting it at night. That's all Washington represents to me, to be herded into a badly ventilated room with people absolutely indifferent to the prerogatives of a lady. Why, if you'll believe me, Mr. Lee, the men in those offices don't even think of rising when I enter the room. And I am actually allowed to pick up my own handkerchief and put on my overshoes unassisted. Such things were unheard of before the war. She paused a moment, then added in a faint, mincing voice, And I was born in the White House. David murmured an apology for the delinquencies of his sex, and felt decidedly uncomfortable. It jars upon one's sensibilities, observed Miss Jackson, taking up the refrain in a minor chord, as she picked her way daintily across the street, to be brought into such close daily contact with one's inferiors. One cannot touch pitch and remain undefiled, and I feel I owe to the United States government a marked deterioration of a naturally fine character, a coarsening, as it were, of the delicate and sensitive fibers so essential to the happiness of our sex. We well-born women are merely sensitive plants, Mr. Lee. We shrivel and contract in an uncongenial atmosphere, or to careless touch. It occurred to David, as he raised his hat and parted from the sensitive plants, that they also owed to the United States government the roof which sheltered them, not to mention food and raiment. He had yet to learn that they were merely a type to be found in almost every boarding house and department in Washington, and by no means represented the army of women who worked quietly and conscientiously, to whom they were in an estimable disadvantage. It was customary for the secretary to reach his office about ten o'clock. Therefore, when David was informed that he had already arrived, and wished to see Mr. Lee as soon as the latter appeared, he obeyed the summons with astonishment. Mr. Redmond sat before his desk in his private office. A wood fire snapped and blazed cheerfully behind the brass wire screen. Its dancing light reflected on the dark polished wood of the handsome mantle. The wintry sun shone with all the vigor it possessed through the large south windows which overlooked the wide expanse known as the Mall, with the Potomac winding its sluggish way towards the ocean and the hills of old Virginia, standing in irregular array against the horizon. The view from his office windows was a constant source of pleasure to the secretary, but today he had not even glanced at the Washington Monument. The matchless symmetry and dignified simplicity of whose shaft gratified his artistic tendencies. "'Mr. Lee,' he said abruptly as David appeared, omitting the usual morning salutation. I want the Roostchook papers. Where are they? David hesitated perceptibly. I left them in your desk, sir, he replied slowly, under the bronze weight in the left-hand drawer, with the other confidential papers. The secretary was nervously bending a paper knife between his fingers, and David watched it mechanically. Mr. Lee, he continued, bringing out his words with an obvious effort, you are the custodian of correspondence coming into your possession, especially in my absence. This matter is of grave importance. The papers are gone, as well as the plan of New York Harbor. I believe them to have been stolen. The War Department has your signed receipt for the plan of defense I borrowed. I myself handed you the other papers to read. The responsibility would seem to rest with you. A messenger entered the room, replenished the fire, and retired quietly. David watched with apparent interest the shower of sparks which ensued before the fresh log blazed up brightly amid the charred fragments of its predecessors. The responsibility, repeated the secretary quietly, rests with you. A dead silence followed as David gradually grasped the situation. In the corridor, without the sound of passing feet, could be heard an occasional careless laugh penetrated through the closed door. 
A ray of sunshine fell directly upon the large glass inkstand, compelling the eye to involuntarily focus upon it and be dazzled in consequence, and the click of a typewriter in an adjoining room was distinctly audible. David mechanically noted these details as he watched the paper knife bend double in the secretary's hands. It snapped suddenly, and the tension relaxed somewhat. Mr. Redmond leaned back in his chair and looked keenly at his private secretary. He saw a man, tall, broad-shouldered, and well set up after the manner of college athletes, young, almost boyish in appearance, with no apparent realization of the serious aspect of the position, and his eyebrows met in a heavy frown of disapproval. But he looked again at the firm outline of the face before him, with its clean-cut mouth and square chin. He noted the clear blue eyes, candid yet vaguely troubled, which met his searching gaze unflinchingly and their secretary looked a third time and changed his firmly grounded opinion. He believed himself a judge of character. "'Have you any theory as to the disappearance of the papers?' he inquired deliberately. "'Not yet,' returned David quietly, the squareness of his lower jaw suddenly accentuated. "'But I shall have in time.' The secretary rose and walked slowly up and down the room in silence, with his hands clasped behind his back and his fingers tightly interlaced. Suddenly he paused and laid his hand upon the younger man's shoulder. Mr. Lee, he said with an entire change of manner, I am much troubled about this matter, and no doubt I seem irritable and unjust. But I trust you will be patient. I must go to the bottom of it myself, of course, but I need your help. My grasp on things is not what it once was, and it is a penalty we all pay to advancing years. The secretary paused and looked anxiously into the blue eyes on a level with his own. You will help me, I am sure, he said gently. I may depend on you, may I not? I will do my best, said David gravely. End of chapter 3 Recording by Robin Classen